Hi, Ed. What was your first computer? TI-99-4A. Wow. You know Texas it. Instrument. Perfect. So, so, Not so only do I know it, but this is something I asked many of the Rockstar programmers that I interviewed many years ago when I did The Secrets of the Rockstar Programmers book. Um, I talked to Rod Johnson, James Gosling, Adrian Collier, many, many people asking them the same question. Oh. So it's a very good question to uh, ask people. And my theory was <clears throat> those of us that grew up in the dawn of the home computer era had a very uh, distinct advantage on those that came after because we ourselves, our lives matured as the technology was growing. Okay. And <clears throat> furthermore, the pace of the growth of the technology was lower than it is now. Yeah. So, you know, we were able to benefit and kind of absorb the knowledge as it was being um, coming up. Whereas people that are entering the industry now, um, they have, you know, so much that has already come before. And furthermore, so much more is coming even faster that it's difficult for them. So um, that was why I like to ask people the same question that you just asked me, which was, what was your first computer? And uh, I find a lot of fun talking about that. I didn't knew that. So, uh, you know why I'm doing this? Well, I gather maybe the same, some of the same reasons I do, because it's a good way to no. understand people's... Well, what is it? Then? <laughs> Tell me, Adam. I have, I have no time to prepare. And if you start this uh -huh. way, you know, this is... Um, we can, you know, talk about, you know, that your road to Java, for instance. And Absolutely. you can tell me whatever you like. And um, it's more honest discussion and usually more fun. So this was my strategy behind. So Okay. Well, there's some, some extra, extra background there because I think uh, it is fun. Now, the, the second one that I got later on was an Apple IIc, and this is one that I did yeah, well, my first... Wait uh, a second. I, I'm, I'm the interviewer. So, uh, ah. <laughs> yeah, you see? So, um, why you got the computer, the TI? <clears throat> um, I saw Superman 2 back mm -hmm. in the early days, and it had this uh, really crazy scene where Richard Pryor... Um, developed this hack algorithm where he basically was able to collect a half cent on a rounding error in some software that he wrote. Okay. And this enabled him to accrue a lot of wealth on the side. And uh, so there was that movie, and then there was also War Games and Tron and, uh, you know, having an Atari 2600 from a few years before I got the TI. So I was all interested in, in that. And yeah. that's the same story for many of the people that grew up at our in our generation. It was yeah. just in the air, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it was a different world, a little bit, right? So, like mm -hmm. something unusual and uh, endless. Um, so interesting. Uh, fun, fun, funny enough, um, I saw the Superman movie on a half, mm -hmm. and I really hated it. I didn't like oh, it. Oh, it's at not all. that great a movie, but it had some good ideas. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I, I I couldn't stand it. So um. <laughs> I, I just remember that the man flew, you know, above the clouds. I said, "What? What is this?" I really like, you know, Star Wars. I like, you know, Tron. Mm -hmm. Tron was not a problem for me. Uh, the War Games not a problem, but I, I really didn't like Superman at all. Yeah, it, it just had a very odd computer connection. That particular one, Superman Two. The okay. other ones did not have that. Superman, Superman Two. So 2 I, I would have to yeah. rewatch that. Okay. Yeah, because so, I mean, how often do you find a movie where? The central premise is a guy who uses a rounding error to make himself wealthy. You know, no, a, not just a rounding error, a rounding error in banking software. Yeah, this is actually an interesting story. So I would have to rewatch it. Yeah. So, yeah. what was the TI? Was it a real computer? So um, I had that. Yes, it was uh, 
8-bit. Um, it had 16K of RAM. Uh, it had a number of interesting features. It had an early uh, speech synthesis module that you could plug in on the side. And uh, in the basic, in basic programs, you could uh, interact with the speech synthesizer and make it talk. Yeah. It had a certain limited vocabulary. Um, so it was always fun to make it say dirty words, but approximately. Yeah, sure. you know, I couldn't really say. <laughs> Funny you yeah. say this because uh, my ZX Spectrum, you could load software and uh, it could also speak a little bit. So I was also mm -hmm. fascinated by that. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, by, by the way, back to the rounding arrow. Were you able mm -hmm. to emulate it somehow with your machine? Like, no, uh, finding out about the rounding, rounding errors or what you did? No, no, I didn't do that. Okay. But, I mean, um, the programming I did with the TI-99 was just like logo. It had logo and it ah, had basic. Okay, go, go forward and, and you know, the, mm -hmm. the small turtle, okay? The turtle, yes. Yeah. Do you actually know that uh, the logo is available on Mac? It's called ACS logo, I think. Ah, you know, no, I didn't. And, and you could actually write uh, almost uh, system software with it. So you have access to everything. So I was also amazed by that. But um, yeah, I don't know what to do with it, but I found it accidentally. Uh -huh. <laughs> so um, have you started just programming with the TI or gaming? Started with gaming with the Atari and then also gaming with the TI, but doing a few little programs. Okay. Because you could record your programs. You know, you'd get them in the mail in your Byte magazine and you'd type them in. Yeah. Uh, and then you could save them to your audio cassette yeah. and load them back. Yeah. So, um, okay. you know, that was the basic stuff. I didn't really do any more serious programming until I got the Apple II. Okay. So what is the Apple II? So you got the Apple II because you behave well, or <clears throat> what was the story behind? <laughs> I got the Apple IIc because I wanted to have the ability to do, like, word processing and, and uh, programming mm -hmm. for school. In high school, this was 1988 or so. Okay. And uh, the Apple IIc uh, had a five and a quarter inch floppy disk drive, mm -hmm. so that was an upgrade. I had the monochrome uh, orange monitor, yeah. And uh, I had it actually; it had a laser mouse uh, with this, you know, special kind of trackpad or special kind of mouse pad, but it had a laser mouse. And um, that was where I did my first real kind of programming project for a high school science fair. Okay. where I wrote uh, an Apple Pascal program to do um, Fourier analysis on waveforms for a science project. High school is not bad. Fourier transform, wow. So this is, it, it was really early. I mean, usually you do... It was a fun project. I, uh, and and it kind of ties into career here because for both this and my initial first job at Sun, there was a computer music connection. Ah, wait so a second. Wait a second. School, we have yeah. you know, from high school to, to, to Sun. I think there are a few yeah. years between. So. There's a few years, but, but there's a connection, and that is um, the high school one was a very fun project. I decided I wanted to have a way to quantify musical sound because I was a band geek and am a band geek still. Uh, what so, you played? Um, which, which instrument did you play? Back then, just trumpet. Yeah. Trumpet? That's yeah. unusual. So, um, yeah. uh, you, you are a second guest on the show with uh, no trumpet background. What interests me? Ah. Uh, you started to play trumpet because you like it, or your parents like it? I liked it because um, this was in third grade, and I had, um, you know, some in my elementary school we had a marching band, and okay. uh, the saxophone looked too complicated, and the piano <laughs> was too big for marching band. Okay. So yeah. I liked the fact that there was only eight combinations on a trumpet. Okay. You know, and also the trumpet has the binary; the valve is either down or up. So. Oh. With with three valves, you have eight combinations. So, 
Oh, this is your, like, you know, the uh, binary approach to playing trumpet. And is it true? Exactly. Is, it, is it actually easy or is it? Um, well, in some sense, it's harder. In some sense, it's easier. So the saxophone is easier on the lips, but the keys are harder. There's more keys. Yeah. Right. So with the trumpet, you have to do more on the lips, but there's fewer keys. Yeah, what, do you, what do you say? There are eight combinations, but can you play with a trumpet all the tones? Sure. I mean, you know, it's a it's a. There's only eight combinations because there's three valves, and each one is either on or off. Um, so you can play, of course, all of the notes in the diatonic scale with with those eight combinations. Yeah, you're right. Uh, same because, with brass Because instrument. there's just one, how it's called octave, right? So there's just one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this this is works. Because on the guitar, you have um, the, the same, how to call it, the same, um, what is it? The same... The same uh, tuning system. Yeah, multiple times, mm -hmm. right? So you have to, uh, the right. same scale. This is what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. The same scale multiple right. times, and on the trumpet, you just have it once, I think, right? Well, yes. And then the difference mainly between the trumpet or any monophonic instrument and a polyphonic instrument like a piano or a guitar, violin, is being able to play one note at a time versus several. So on the right. trumpet, it's easier. And, and any, any wind instrument, too. You know? Okay. So You don't have to think about harmonies. You don't have to think about harmonies ever. So. Interesting conversation. I don't have any music background, but uh, what you said makes absolute sense, right? Because, uh, yeah, except I'm playing just solo with the guitar, then it's similar, right? Uh -huh. Well, yeah. So if you're playing solo with the guitar, then you're playing chords and you're able to accompany yourself and uh, yeah, fun. Interesting. So you just play trumpet or multiple instruments? Uh, back then, just trumpet. Now I've added a few others. Which? Yeah. Uh, ukulele and keyboard and a little didgeridoo. Yeah. Didgeridoo is fun. This yeah. is like, you know, uh, you know Yotu Indie? No, I don't. Yotu Indie is an Australian band with lots of didgeridoo, ah. so you have to, to listen to cool. them. Really nice. Yeah, I like that. So I had a very fun uh, Null Pointers uh, encounter. Mm -hmm. um, Null Pointers is one of the things that I'm very thankful for in my Java journey. This is a band of uh, Java enthusiasts that we would play at conferences over the years. Java One and GoTo and Dev Nexus. Mm -hmm. um, but one time we had a chance to play at GoTo Chicago, and uh, we were just having our jam, and someone who had attended the conference uh, had brought a didgeridoo, so they were joining us and playing hey, cool. in the band. Nice. So at high school, so you were able to mm -hmm. quantify music. So what you quantified, and what, what was the result of the quantification? Okay, so the, the, the hypothesis in the Science Fair project was... Um, it is possible to do a quantitative analysis of musical sound um, to determine um, how rich the sound is. And so okay. what we did with the 4AA transforms was uh, to take a look at the waveforms okay. and analyze how many overtones you had in your trumpet tone. So what I did was I took, uh, I had all of the trumpet players in my trumpet section in my high school band play into an oscilloscope, and I took a picture of the waveforms and then did the Fourier analysis on that to try to understand how many overtones were present mm -hmm. and use that as a measure of quantitative analysis of sound. But when I look back on that, it was really kind of foreshadowing a lot of the things that I've done, in, in not technically speaking, but like doing presentations. Like I still go and do a lot of public speaking and uh, had a chance to go and do some of that again for the first time after COVID, just two weeks ago, um, in Zurich and also in um, Basel and Lucerne and several other cities for Java user groups. Okay. So, uh, 
the, the moral of the story is I've been doing public speaking since okay. I was in high school. Okay, nice. So um, I think it was successful. If you won anything yeah. there, or what, what was the outcome? It won the first place. I got my picture in the newspaper. My mom was very excited about that. Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, yeah, this is great. I mean, this is a huge achievement, right? No kidding. That was fun. Yeah, yeah for, it was fun. It was, maybe it definitely set me up. And uh, the second one was um, in college. I okay. had a chance to, I went to University of Illinois, which was a really great choice. A lot of reasons that we could go into, but one of them was their computer music department. Okay. And um, I had a chance to do some Next programming on the Next Cube. Mm -hmm. They had uh, a thing called Music Kit, which was an API that lets you interface with MIDI and do all sorts of fun things. Um, but one of the things that I was interested in was um, just intonation. Mm -hmm. So just intonation is a, a way to tune um, your notes. Um, such that they are actual integer multiples of uh, each of the octaves. Whereas on a regular piano, they have a thing called equal temperament, which is kind of an approximation. So okay. you, you have to really, really have a special kind of set of ears to understand the difference between just intonation and equal temperament. But um, it's there. And so the way a piano is tuned is generally speaking using this technique called equal temperament, where The, it's not exactly integer multiples of all of the octaves. But in just intonation, it is. But the problem is, if you're doing just intonation, you can't do key changes. So basically, you tune the, the keyboard for like uh, A440, and then everything has to be set up based on that A. So if you're playing a song that's an A, and you want to modulate to F sharp or something, Uh, on an equal temperament piano, you can do it and it will work. Whereas if you do that on a just intonation piano, it gets weird and starts to sound funny. Okay. So equal equal temperament is basically a hack that lets you change keys easily. Okay. So um, I wrote a little next step program with App Kit or Music Kit rather that um, approximated this, where you, when you're playing on the piano, um, if you want to change keys, you would uh, simply have a pedal that you'd press and then hit the tonic of the key you're changing to, and it would retune the keyboard mm -hmm. with the just intonation. Mm -hmm. So I had to do this in Objective-C, and uh, I had Objective-C on my resume, and when I was looking for a job and applying at Sun, the group that was interviewing me was this company called Lighthouse Design, okay. which was acquired by Sun in 1996, and uh, they were in Objective-C Next Step House. Okay. And so they were looking for anyone. There were very few people that had both Java or, you know, interest in Java and Objective-C experience. And you, and you had Java background back then, though? No, I didn't. I was trying to get into Sun. So okay. I mean, I had a tiny little bit. It was just, you know, I, I did a tiny little bit of Java and, and, at SGI. And why you wanted to start at Sun? Well, um, I was working at Silicon Graphics before that, okay. uh, SGI. And they um, were already starting to suffer from their business choices to go all in on boutique proprietary hardware for graphics cards rather than uh, what some of their, it's a really fascinating story actually. Um, the success of NVIDIA um, is in part due to the demise of SGI. Um, because, uh, just stop you for a second because I was yeah. a huge fan of, a fan of Silicon Graphics and what I really mm -hmm. liked, the workstations. So I think mm -hmm. the one was called Ozone or something like this, right? This O2. O2, exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, they are really nice. I really wanted to have one, but they were crazy yep. expensive. This was all... Of course. It, yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, bluish, right? The, the, yep, the it was design. a blue... Uh, kind of, yeah. It looked like a... 
larger toaster, but it was blue and yeah. very pretty case. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. And uh, SGI, I, I was just, you know, I just wanted to have one, but yeah, it was way too expensive. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, so go ahead. No, it's a great story because the, that's one of those companies that had a lot of, in the mid-90s, that was the place where everyone wanted to work. Okay. So the fact that I got a job there, was a, I was very pleased and lucky with that. <clears throat> and that's, again, attributable to uh, University of Illinois because <laughs> I had a chance to work on NCSA Mosaic. And oh, really? So, so you, you also worked right. on the first browser. So um, wait, the, the story gets more and more exciting. So um, <laughs> you, you, you started at high school. Then you wanted to become a developer, right? So this was the idea. Right. And then you said, right. okay, where to apply? I go to university. Why Illinois? Right. Because of music. Well, it's a good question. It had, you know, when I did my research, it was the top, it was number five in the United States for computer science. And the, the first four were too expensive or hard to get into. Okay. So I think it was like MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Berkeley, um, Cornell, and then U of I. So when I okay. applied, I'm like, yeah, U of I is where I'll go. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the best investment I ever made um, in, in, in my education there. So uh, they had a good music program. They had a good computer science program. And that was a good fit for me. Which programming uh, languages you learned at uh, the university? Uh, we started with, well, actually, CS101 was in Pascal. Okay. Then um, C, C++. Um, I didn't take a course in Objective-C, but uh, I had to learn it for that music course, for that uh, mm -hmm. project that I did. Um, I think Lisp. We did an AI, early AI thing in Lisp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And and some Perl, you know, but it was everyone did Perl back then. So how you got to to Silicon Graphics then? Well, um, <clears throat> I worked at NCSA doing a student as a student programmer on Mosaic and Silicon Graphics at that time. It was just this... a, it was like an assignment, or you just wanted to continue. Oh no, um, I you know I was able to get a job working there. I knew some people that worked on Mosaic for X. And uh, they worked there after um, Andreessen and Bina and Middlehauser and Chris Wilson uh, all went their own separate ways. So, and this is another one of the things that I covered in the Rockstar book was um, early connections. Like, you know, in my case, having a chance to work on Mosaic when it was just a thing before Mozilla or Netscape or any of that was just a really important event for me. Yeah, my sure. Career. Yeah, I mean, this is, a this, is, this is like, you know, internet history, right? This is like, yeah, yeah. Oh. crazy. Because Mosaic is like, you know, the foundation of Netscape. And Netscape mm -hmm. is what yeah. uh, Firefox is now about. And, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, the crazy story. So, so you worked right. actually for on, on what you did there? So what was your... Well, here's what I did. Um, and this is, there's a German connection here, which is very fun. Um the little bit of thing that I worked on was an early, early, early plugin architecture called Common Client Interface, CCI. Okay. This was basically just a, um, a way to remote control the uh, Mosaic X client with an API. Okay. So um, it was a direct C++ API, and you had a DSO that you would link to your static thing, and then you could drive a browser. So I um, wrote a little program that um, used a thing called the multicast backbone, mbone. This okay. was a, an, an internet, um, sort of internet teleconferencing uh, idea that really never panned out, which is kind of funny because there's an SGI connection there too. They had a thing called in-person, which was their video conferencing system. Okay. And, and this was in 1995. So every uh, SGI Indie or O2 that you bought came with a webcam. 
1995. So no one had webcams in 1995, but SGI did. And um, so they had a thing called the M-Bone, Multicast Backbone, that you could do video conferencing on. Um, and it would use um, UDP instead of TCP uh, because it was uh, better suited for multicast. In fact, the only way to do multicast is with UDP. And <clears throat> the problem with um, UDP is it's not um, reliable. <clears throat> you have to do reliability because, uh, in other words, packet loss is something that's accepted. And if you want to deal with packet loss, you have to do it at the application layer. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so someone else had written a reliable multicast protocol uh, library, um, and I used this library to write a little program which I called Webcast, which would let you um, have a series of mosaic browsers or and yeah mosaic browsers connected and sh uh, surf a set of pages together. So there would be one person that would be the leader, and then everyone else could subscribe, and their browser would automatically go to the same URLs. It was a really simple thing. Basically, it would just use the common client interface to send the um, URL over the um, multicast connection. Then all the other browsers would fetch it at the same time. Actually, so, I'm using a small library right now for my web front-end development. It's called BrowserSync, and it mm -hmm. does the same via WebSocket. So you can open you know, one browser, and all the others follow mm -hmm. the first browser for testing. You know, so it, Exactly the same project. Yeah, uh, yeah. so this... But, so we used this at the uh, fifth International Worldwide Web Conference in Darmstadt oh. at the Fraunhofer Institute. And I went there as a student um, uh, sort of assistant because of working at NCSA. And so that was my first, like, real professional kind of IT connection to Germany. And so I've been coming back ever since. That was So my love of doing IT-related stuff in, in Germany goes back to May of 1995. It's interesting that be was. because uh, I already had mm -hmm. um, someone from Germany on the podcast. He also attended the conference. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, and uh, I was just curious why Darmstadt, because it's unusual. Right now, nothing happens in Darmstadt. Well, that's right? where Fraunhofer was. There was a Fraunhofer ah, Institute okay. there. Okay, this was the reason. Okay, now I understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So. But this is crazy. So you, as a student, you know, you were able, you know, to travel to Germany. So it was nice, right? Nice I know. experience. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. They're crazy. So um, <clears throat> were you talented or just excited about the technology? It's like, was it easy to you to uh, for you to do the things or you just worked hard? No, it's an interesting thing. And I listened to your previous episode with Teresa, and uh, you talked about with her um, nature versus nurture. And um, the point that you surfaced with her was the difference between just pure talent and what I like to call grit, yeah. the ability to just push through. Yeah. I am all about the grit. Uh, pure talent is not so much something. That I, I It takes me a long time to get things done, but I'm very driven you know, yeah. to try to push them and get them done. So definitely the latter for me. Okay. Very good. Because um, I always you know, I'm wondering... What is smartness? You know? How smart can you be? And if you mm -hmm. are smart, how much do you have to learn? Because mm -hmm. even if you are crazy smart, you have at least look at something, you know? So you have mm -hmm. to read something, you have to understand. And is it this, this is a fascinating story, actually. So this is why I'm asking yes. the questions, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but uh, still, as a student, you want to you know multiple competitions just with your grit, right? Grit, exactly. Yep. Mm hmm. Nice. Uh, and connections and luck, you know, so this is yeah, one of the sure. things that I explored in the, in the Rockstar book. It's like uh, I had a whole series of talks that went along with it, uh, talking about, you know, how important is luck. And it's you have uh, basically for me, I boiled it down to right place, right time, right skills. Yes. But in your so, case, let, let, let's see, 
without your mm-hmm. grit there will be no luck i would say if you right. if you, if you mm-hmm. work harder hard mm-hmm. then uh you know you try and try harder you will meet some people and then something happens and you can say okay mm-hmm. this is luck but it wasn't you just mm-hmm. try to you know multiple times and after 100 time something happened but you forgot you know the previous 99 times where nothing happened so this is what i think what you would say is luck it could be somehow luck because i'm no, no more able to work on mosaic of course but uh mm-hmm. you know if i would try hard to do something maybe it happens something on asia or who no in, there's always opportunity but without grit nothing will happen yeah that's true um I remember um info right yeah there was a gentleman that uh started in, uh he started at server side, Floyd Marinescu, yeah. and then he founded InfoQ. Yeah. And uh, after he left InfoQ um, successfully, he's been doing a lot of great work on universal basic income, um, which is an idea that I think is really important. And as automation increases and the population increases and the wealth disparity of like who gets to benefit from inventing technology uh, and how widespread does that benefit flow, I think there's going to be more and more people that need to deal with or, or look more seriously at universal basic income. So that's something Floyd's been doing. But to tie it back to grit, uh, the story I talked to him about was when he was studying um, at, I think he was at uh, some school in Toronto. Maybe it was Toronto, Canada. He's he's Canadian. Um, I don't remember his exact school. Maybe it was Waterloo. I don't know. But he tells the story that a lot of his uh, peers at the time were very interested in video game programming, whereas for him, he was in undergrad when J2EU was first coming around, mm-hmm. and he saw it coming around. He's like, oh, I'm going to study this because mm-hmm. this looks really important, mm-hmm. um, but none of his peers were interested in it. He's like, oh, come on. You, you should look at this. It's a lot easier to do work in J2EE than it is to write video games yeah. and a lot more profitable. <laughs> so that was the lesson he told his friends, and uh, he was able to parlay that into the whole story with InfoQ. So he just had a lot of grit as well. Yeah, interesting. So um, it, it gets more and more interesting. So uh, you, you work for NCSA and Mosaic, and then right. what was the connection to SGI? Uh, that's the fun thing. So SGI had, uh, at the time, were trying, well, everyone really, was trying to build tools that let people create content for the web. Mm-hmm. So um, if you had a, a piece of software that let you author web pages in some way, mm-hmm. uh, you could really do well. So Spyglass was a company that was, I think, from Champaign, Illinois also, and they had their own browser and authoring tool, and I think they got bought or merged into somehow into Microsoft Internet Explorer 1.0. Um, but SGI had their own thing that they had called Cosmo, which was a web authoring suite mm-hmm. um, that did HTML, and VRML. Yeah. You remember VRML? Yeah. yeah, sure. Right. It was so, also supporting um, Internet Explorer. Back then it was a huge deal. So I was right. 1997, was 1998, they really wanted to have VRML. And what I remember yep. right now, the thing was to having a mall in the internet. You remember this? Having a mall was the thing. You know, like, like yeah, was, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Those were like, you know, the 3D space where you can move around and buy things. So mm-hmm. I was, mm-hmm. I also had, you know, to program a mall with Java and of course VRML. Ah, okay. So, so um, they wanted anyone, they were interested in hiring anyone that had anything to do with HTML authoring or browsers. So the, the fact that I had done that with a mosaic made me a very appealing candidate uh, to go out into uh, Silicon graphics. Okay. 
So but, it just so applied to silic uh, silicon graphing, and it, and this was the yeah, right? Uh, yeah, I mean they were I I applied out there, right? I, you know, as my regular undergrad graduation process, you do a lot of interviewing, and um, somehow I got a connection to one of the people at SGI that was hiring, and they were interested. Okay, and what was your job there? Uh, well, we I worked on the um, web authoring tool, Cosmo Create, for HTML. Wow. And also they had um, a little – Irix was the Unix variant that was uh, SGI. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a little transport library that um, basically was a web – like, you know, curl, of course, yeah. right? So um, – it was a little web library similar to curl built into the irix kernel mm -hmm. um that would fetch web pages and let you parse them and stuff mm -hmm. okay so. still interesting because uh yeah. very similar to gsf right <laughs> later kind of right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah okay so why you left sgi I, then because you you, you noticed because well, I, I saw the writing on the wall and i saw so that the history of sgi was there was some people in the company that recognized our secret sauce is licensing the graphics chip design. Basically, this, the exact thing that NVIDIA does with its uh, uh -huh. graphics chips. Uh -huh. There was another group inside of SGI that looked at Apple and said, oh, no, no, no. We need the full system integration uh -huh. where we make the hardware and the operating system and we control all of the things and we have a very beautiful package and everything is a beautiful thing. So these two factions inside of SGI were you know, sort of fighting, like uh, do we go commodity or do we go boutique? Mm -hmm. single story and uh the the boutique single story people won but um at the time the ability to do high-end graphics manipulations on commodity x86 hardware was a relatively new thing so um but once people started to figure out how to do that on windows x86 machines um sgi could not make the margins that it used to make on those high-end graphics cards so eventually they started losing market share, um, and I recognized, yeah, this is not going to be a good thing, and I saw Sun was having this Java thing, so I decided to apply there. And because I had that Objective-C thing on my resume from the music app, <laughs> uh, my resume was picked up by Lighthouse Design. Hey, cool. A cool story, so, actually. Yeah. I'm, so, very, I'm very, very, very blessed. I've, got, I've had a lot of good luck, but again, if you have luck plus grit, that's success. Yeah, back to luck. The question is, how many times have you applied you know and 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 about your grit and how much time do you spend researching the companies this is also you know this is not like luck if you say okay i go to sgi just out of the blue this would be luck but if you say okay i did a lot of research i learned a lot and now i see sgi i would i wouldn't consider this as luck rather than you know doing your homework well I would call it distributed luck because instead of doing direct research myself um, back at that time, uh, there was just so much buzz in the air of like where to go. And this was, you know, mid 90s Silicon Valley and there weren't too many super hot top 10 companies or even top five. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was basically um, Netscape, mm -hmm. uh, SGI, um, Apple. Um, Sun, IBM, not really IBM. Oracle. Maybe HP was still a thing. Oracle. Oracle, actually, Oracle already had a a name and a reputation yeah. uh, as like a software mill uh, because okay. they were seen. They, they already were at that time the largest number 
employees that were doing software. Okay. So the reputation that Oracle had when I was graduating college in 1995 was, eh, yeah, you can go to Oracle, but you know, it's, you'll just be a number there. They're just a, okay. they're a huge company, and you know, you don't really want to go there if you want to make a big splash. Yeah. yeah. Okay. If you want to, you know, that was the rep that Oracle had, so okay. I didn't apply there. But they knew that because uh, I think so, 1996, seven. I think they had mm -hmm. uh, the Oracle database number six, version six or seven. And this was very early, so back then. So I thought they they're smaller, but they, they were already that huge. So they still had, I remember, thirty thousand employees back then. Wow, crazy! That okay, I, that okay. was the number that sticks in my head. I could be wrong, but I I definitely know the reputation Oracle had was, yeah, you don't want to go there unless you're okay being a small player in a big pond. Mm -hmm. So what did did you want to be? A, well, when I joined Sun, it was in the Lighthouse Design Group, and they were acquired because. Done and Scott McNeely was like, "Hey, you know what? Let's let's see if we could take on Microsoft. Uh, let's build an office suite." Okay. So, um, Lighthouse Design had an office suite for Next Step, mm -hmm. and that was the thing that uh, Sun was interested in. So they were trying to build a productivity suite with a um, word processor, spreadsheet, uh, presentation tool um, based in Java, and uh, this project never actually shipped uh it did get to a, like a beta level quality um but the thing i worked on was uh, a java version of this multi-dimensional spreadsheet called quantrix wow so quantrix was uh, a thing that um did like in excel you can do pivot tables mm -hmm. where you can have um, multi-columns and a, it's a very nice way of structuring data kind of hard to think about <clears throat> but for certain kinds of data it's absolutely essential so quantrix was the next step version of this, and we had a Java version that we were doing. So that's what I worked on. And, but then there was, as any UI thing, there's a UI toolkit underneath it, and um, that was when AWT was starting, right? So um, we had a, before Swing took off, the people at Lighthouse Design were trying to influence the design of Swing to be a more next step approach. Okay. They really liked the next step app kit of things. Uh, so that was really my first um, introduction to the politics of large companies and which projects get the green light and which do not. Mm -hmm. So uh, this group, Lighthouse Design, had an alternate uh, proposal for what ended up being Swing, um, but it was not the Swing approach that we finally ended up with had nothing to do with this proposal. Was it the proposal for, from Lighthouse better than Swing? In your opinion, right now, I don't. Uh, in some sense, only if you really like the uh, you know the action responder chain mm -hmm. of UI development that is built into okay. Next Step and and eventually went into Apple as well. Uh, I don't think it's there anymore, but um, I think probably what we ended up with Swing was the right choice yeah. because we had um, a lot of success with it. Yeah, of, of course. And um, mm -hmm. and why they lost. What was it like? Um, there was probably, it wasn't probably mature enough. I think the idea was, you know, when you're trying to pitch an idea, it has to be quick enough to get to the boardroom where these decisions are made. Uh, but it also has to be enough quality that okay. um, if you have to, if you have some better connected incumbents that have their proposal, your proposal has to be better than theirs by a bigger margin. Yeah. So um, the connectedness of the initial swing people, I think, made uh, their proposal be what was more adopted what happened then so, so you just 
Ah, well, then the um, AOL Sun Netscape Alliance happened. So this was in 1999, and um, this was a very fun thing because it gave me the opportunity to come back to working on the browser. So I worked on a thing called OJI. Uh -huh. OJI was the open Java VM interface uh, that was a part of Netscape 6 that enabled um, different companies to produce uh, the thing that would run the Java applets. Okay. So um, while applets were still a thing, the only way to get them working was through JNI. Okay. If you remember, JNI yeah. Yeah, was yeah. A, a way to do uh, native code interaction. Java native so, interface, yeah. Right, right. But now we think about uh, native and Java, we think about Quarkus and Graal VM. Yeah. Uh, but back then, this was kind of native um, the other way around, where you had native code that was being uh, dynamically linked by the operating system shared library uh, facility. It's like, uh, like the project Val code. Valhalla right now. They, they still try you know, to do, do, do this. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. So this is, uh, but there's no uh, JNI headers in there, is it? No, no, they try. No, no, JNI uh, is still there, but they try. You know, oh. the project Valhalla optimize the things. Mm -hmm. For instance, for scientific computing, maybe the thing you mm -hmm. know where you can call from Java, you know, already existing libraries. So they try to optimize that. Um, right. Interesting. So, um, and 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 then, so you worked on Netscape with the. I didn't knew actually that you can swap, you know, the Java virtual machines which run applets. Yeah, I mean, because Microsoft had one, too. That was part of the big ah, sure. um, fight. If you wanted to, uh, what, what was it? J++. Yeah. For Microsoft, sure. yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, so then um, that was takes me to, like, 2001, and that's when J2EE was starting to take off. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, Sun had seen the, excess, the success of Struts, and so they were like, yeah, we've got struts. Uh, we have this J2EE thing, which had, as you know, more than many people in the world, uh, JMS and EJB mm -hmm. uh, and Servlet and JSP were like yeah. the first yeah. four specs in there. Yeah. So Sun saw the popularity of struts and recognized, well, we should add a UI layer to uh, J2EE. And that's when they hired Craig McClanahan and uh, had him say, okay, we're going to, and it was he and Amy Fowler. Mm -hmm. uh, and Amy Fowler was one of the people that worked on Swing. So, and and um, extremely she, smart. So the Amy delivered, you know, lots of sessions uh, at Java 1 about Swing. And, you know, mm -hmm. and she always answered all the questions, you know, right away. So this was like crazy. Oh, she's great. I really yeah. enjoyed working with her. And, and so Craig, she, where he worked uh, before, you know that? Craig McLennan? I didn't know where he worked before. No. Because he was, you know, the, you and Craig were, you know, the big GSF guys, I would say. Of course. I'm, uh, I'm getting to that story. Yeah. I didn't knew that Amy Fowler played a role because she was always involved mm -hmm. with Swing. Absolutely. So uh, I think Hans Moser. No, not Hans Moser. Hans Moser is a famous. No, Hans, uh, uh, for sure. Folk singer. Hans, <laughs> yeah. Hans did the JSR two nine five and JSR two nine six. This uh, Swing application framework. This is yes. I will have to look up what was her last name, but uh, there. Right. There. Yeah. But he and Amy Fowler had this presentation at Java One two thousand one, uh, Moon Palace or something. Moonwalk. I think it was maybe Moonwalk. Uh, was the the code name for this thing? So they did a demo at Java One, which was the early JSF. 
and then they um, hired Craig, and I had an opportunity to apply internally. So when the Netscape 6 Java VM interface, OpenGNI, I'm sorry, um, Java browser thing uh, was uh, becoming less interesting, I decided, okay, let me apply for this job on the implementation team for mm -hmm. this new JSF thing. So, um, and I and eventually ended up stepping up as co-spec lead uh, to finish off the project because Amy moved on to something else. So that's how Craig and I became co-spec leads for JSF 1.0. But Amy then eventually, back I think she did, but she also um, sort of stepped back because her husband, John Fowler, um, was a big VP at Sun at the time. I, I think he might still be at Oracle. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, so she basically decided to shift her focus on family and okay. kids more. Okay. So she kind of stepped back from that technical role and sort of semi-retired. And and uh, the name of the gentleman is Hans Müller or Müller. Yes, that's right. And Hans uh, I still I'm at the his email is hans.muller at sun.com. So you can still send him uh, emails, you know. <laughs> I would think it would bounce. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. interesting story. Um. So you you took over JSF with uh, Craig, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And and how free were you with the design of JSF? So. Uh, well, this is where we come to the thing that I'm most passionate about. You might see that I'm wearing a Java community process. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's where, that was my first uh, interaction to the idea of JCP. And um, the DNA of JCP really goes back to um, the early Internet standards bodies like IETF, mm -hmm. which was the group that did... Uh, you know, TCP and, and UDP and all of the, mm -hmm. and, and MIME and all of the internet standards that make everything possible today were done through IETF. Um, and then another standards group that I was involved in was W3C. Mm -hmm. um, so by working on Netscape and having to do with browsers, I was definitely interacting with W3C. I was never on a W3C working group myself, but I knew plenty of people that were. Um, so I liked that community-driven model. The notion, I was just really obsessed with this notion that innovation happens elsewhere and that any one party who tries to think, oh, okay, I've got all the answers, um, they're wrong. No one can have all the answers. So any system that sources answers from a larger number of experts is going to do better than a system that uh, only pulls the answers from one or a small number. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, to innovation happens, about how free innovation happens, happens elsewhere. There was a book from... That's right. I don't remember, but it is a phrase. Uh, yeah, it is a phrase from someone popular. from Sun, I think. There was a, exactly. Probably. Yeah. It might okay. have been Dick Gabriel. I don't remember. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or even Jonathan Schwartz. I don't know. <laughs> and so did, you had the idea that uh, you would like to create like an open initiative for J JSF, right? No, no, it wasn't my idea. So that was the thing. Um, I was just sort of the steward and sort of uh, able to bring my um, talent at wrangling people together uh, and settling arguments or building consensus or all of the things you had to do to be a spec lead, um, that's what I enjoyed doing. So, um, you know, for the for example, JSF 1.0, um, many people might not recognize this, but when JSF 1.0 came out, it was right around the same time that Spring 1.0 came out, mm -hmm. and both of them had full XML-based uh, inversion of control frameworks. Mm -hmm. And um, 
for JSF, it was called Managed Beans, right? You remember Managed Beans. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> you had to wire them all up with a bunch of XML in yeah. your faces config file. And uh, in Spring, you would do the same thing. You had a Spring config XML yeah. file. So yeah. um, that object manager system was one of the things that uh, Hans Miller was very interested in. Uh, and we also had some people on the expert group for JSF 1.0. Uh, Joe Berkovitz, I think was his name, from ATG. They had a system called Dynamo, Dynamo. which uh, did JHTML. Kind of right you remember JHTML? This was invention for yes. Dynamo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So the power of of JCP, and which we leveraged, I think, very successfully, maybe even most successfully on JSF, is being able to take ideas from lots of other places and synthesize them and, into a standard. You know. Okay. So uh, I would not look at it as like my own freedom. Um, I had plenty of freedom. I, my, my favorite time uh, for JSF was around JSF 2.0 when we had so many fun features that were coming in. We had facelets coming in. We had this concept of composite components where you yep. could um, build components there. And I remember one of my favorite things was I got an email from Roger Kalman. Now, Roger Kalman is a name most people don't know, but he was the manager of the Swing team okay. at Sun. And uh, um, Swing had this feature called PLAF, Pluggable Look and Feel. Yeah. Uh, and the idea was they would have lots of different component libraries from different vendors, and they would be coexisting together in the same app. Um, but for he sent me an email saying, you know, you, you achieved the dream that we were trying to do with Swing, because we did at that time. There was a time when there was at least three or four different vendors that were making JSF component libraries yeah. and, that you could uh, use off the shelf. And JSF was the hot technology. So what you should remember back then, you know, Java One, all the JSF sessions at Keynote, they were huge. So I mean, this I was this was like thousands of people were watching, and everyone was excited excited about that. So this is like, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you were in the center, you know, of the entire thing. So I would say I was run. very lucky. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, lucky again, you know. <laughs> I mean, we had the conversation right. already. Lucky was right. a little bit of, I would say, two per, two percent lucky and uh, ninety eight percent grit. Mm -hmm. I would say, um, but um, okay. Um, and um but right now because right now there's the perception like uh, gsf doesn't work well and this was always the case because what i saw is what happens in large companies it's like uh, you know the architects they just evaluated a framework and then forced everyone to use the components and sometimes the users or clients wanted to have something something else. But because the decision was already made, we have to choose this framework. The poor developers had, you know, to extend the framework, fork the framework and create, you know, the Java implementation with the JavaScript and HTML implementation. And this could never fly. But the most successful projects were smaller companies just picked the framework and tried, you know, to use the, the framework, to use the advantages of the framework. And this was highly productive experience always. Right. So, and and this right. was and because you know GSF was used more and more in larger projects, and there was no connection direct connection between the developers and the end users, it was not as successful. This was the problem, and still is. Yeah, uh, I bring it back to fit. Uh, you have to have the right tool for the job. So I believe that um, the initial target of JSF was like page-based corporate apps, where you have um, uh, you have groups that are looking at business requirements and they're building browser-based simple UIs yeah. uh, to uh, adapt those requirements and, and build software to that. Mm -hmm. So 
that's the right sweet spot. If you try to use JSF for a really flashy single page app, that's not the right fit. Exactly. So, but there's, but it turns out most of the business enterprise apps fit into that former category. Yeah. You know. By the way, funny fact: enterprise apps. Uh, one hour before our session, there was the AHEX TV question and answer show, and one question uh-huh. was uh, Prime Faces versus React. Still. Uh-huh. Uh, still, wow. so it's not like it's uh, still going on. So the discussion is still going on. So it's uh, okay. Yeah, I know you had a previous, you had Shatai on in episode one fifty. Yeah. So I have to go back and listen to that. But uh, I love great Shatai guy and... about prime faces. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, I know. Uh, I vividly remember this was another one of the um, career peaks. So um, Ajax experience, the Ajax experience. Uh, Jay Zimmerman was this company, this guy who did uh, no fluff, just stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, he had tried to you know, partner and splinter off a few other little things. And so he did uh, this thing called the Ajax Experience, which was a conference with Dion Almer and Ben Galbraith. Yeah. Uh, and then another one he spun off was the Rich Web Experience. So Keto Man got involved with that. And um, one of the times they had that conference, they came to Orlando, which was is where I live. And uh, we managed to have a ton of JSF people there. And I had a party at my house. Okay. And it was like the... The peak of my career because I had Martin Marinchik from Erie in there. I had Neil uh, Griffin from Life Ray. Um, I had Chitai Savici uh, from Prime Faces, and Mert Kaliskan was also there. Um, and I, you know, I got to have them all at my house. It was so great. Yeah, and there were lots of implementations. There were like rich faces, rich faces, ice Prime faces, faces, ice faces, mm-hmm. Prime faces. Mm-hmm. There were pretty faces in one point of time, which yep. we had lots of faces back then, right? So this was like yep. everyone right. had its own faces framework right right okay. yeah and in fact i had a really interesting interaction a few weeks ago uh, mm-hmm. when i got to do this um <clears throat> my first post-covid conference trip um i had a chance to speak at this uh, group called ch open mm-hmm. they do uh, a thing called workshop taga exactly. every year in mm-hmm. zurich mm-hmm. and they invited me to give a keynote and teach a workshop and when i got the opportunity i said well i want to try to leverage this as much as I can. So we built a little jug tour mm-hmm. uh, and I went to uh, the Java user groups in um, Basel, Lucerne, Lausanne, and Zurich mm-hmm. uh, and spoke at all those different places in person. So that was really great. But I also did uh, speaking to customers. Mm-hmm. So um, one of our one of Microsoft's customers is Swiss Re. Mm-hmm. They um, are a reinsurer and they're a big user of the Azure Spring Cloud service. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I talked to them in person, one of the engineers that was working on the Spring Cloud work at Swiss Re came up to me and said, Ed, glad to meet you. Uh, I really enjoyed using JSF 2.0. I was very productive with it back then. And I was like, oh, man, I felt so good to hear. Yeah. JSF 2.0 was really great. And, and I mean, one was also good for the time, right? I mean, you couldn't achieve yep. more with the first version. This is right. always the case. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> So you stick with a JSF at Sun until the end, or what was the story with you and JSF? Yeah, so, um, well, the, that had a bit of a soap opera end, to it, if you'll recall. So, um, and JSF was kind of on the front lines of this, and this is where uh, the Java eGuardians comes in. So um, there was a very famous blog post that looked at the number of commits and uh, email discussion on the JSF expert group to um, intuit that Oracle had lost interest in Java EE mm-hmm. uh, and someone, I forget who it was. I think I know it was Josh Juneau. Exactly. Josh Juneau 
Yeah. So had that famous blog post. And, uh, you know, us, those of us inside of Oracle at the time, we knew this. We didn't like it. But, you know, we work for a corporation. So we weren't able to really um, protest and say, oh, I don't think this is the best move for our users. But, you know, it's beyond, we, we have a saying in English that's above my pay grade yeah. to make that kind of decision. Yeah. So we just went along with what we were doing. We were working on other things. What you um, did then? Instead of doing GSF, what you did then? All right. So this was at the time where microservices were starting to be a popular pattern, where the cloud was starting to you know, really take off. This was 2015 or mm -hmm. so, I think. And, there, and Docker was a big thing. But uh, there was no clear winner in terms of container orchestration. Mm -hmm. So Kubernetes haven't even been invented yet. So the main thing that people were using was uh, Apache Mesos mm -hmm. to do uh, you know, what is now mm -hmm. mainly done by Kubernetes. So we had a pro project in Oracle to try to do a uh, Java-based framework on top of Apache Me Mesos mm -hmm. uh, to do container orchestration. So okay. that's what we were working on instead of... Uh, you know, finishing Java EE eight. Okay, interesting. Uh -huh. So uh, then Josh Juno wrote his blog post and got some attention to the community. And the, this is my opinion. Um, it's almost like a letter writing campaign for fans of a TV show that gets canceled. Mm -hmm. So there have been instances where um, a TV show like I don't know Love Boat or something okay. gets canceled. And then the, a lot of fans write in letters and say, bring it, bring it back for another season, and they do. So I kind of feel like that's what the Java E Guardians did, where um, eventually we got the permission to finish off Java E8 mm -hmm. and uh, hand that off to the Jakarta project. Okay. So um, that was you know, a lot of great work done by Ed Bratt and uh, many others inside of Oracle to make that happen. And was there any relation between the framework you did and Helidon project? Because uh, there was the, the Helidon was also like a microservice project at Oracle. Sure, but Helidon is still going on. Yeah, yeah. And is still a very successful project, and I'm yeah. very fond of it. Um, uh, did you have anyone on to talk about Helidon? Yeah, yeah, multiple times, and Helidon is really great. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, it is. I love it. Uh, but I don't believe there's any real relation to that. Uh, okay. Maybe some of the same people, but the architecture is different. And um, Helidon couldn't exist without having um, the, the Graal and other kinds of... Yeah, uh, and your uh, framework was then on hold. So your Mesos uh, DCOS framework was... Yeah, they, you know, it, it eventually was canceled. Um, okay. And that was part of the reason that helped me decide it was okay to move to Microsoft because I had experienced that several times mm -hmm. where a project was started and we worked <laughs> on it for like six months, maybe, yeah. maybe even a year, and eventually it gets put on the shelf. And... Mm -hmm. That's not for, that's not uh, very fun to experience. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, on the positive side, you know, you're learning things all the time. Yeah. Uh, so those lessons, as an engineer, um, you're able to learn those lessons. And okay, this is how Mesos works. Okay, this is how Docker works. Uh, this is how um, I would build a system on top of Docker to moderate images or something like that. Um, all of that is useful, but if you really focus on delivering shareholder value, it's hard to say investing in a year of engineers working on a project and then canceling it is a good ROI. Yeah. So when I see those kinds of decisions being made and I look at what Microsoft was doing, um, it was a clear win to go to Microsoft. So you applied at Microsoft or what was? 
Well, um, there's a gentleman at, who has been doing Java at Microsoft for a very long time, Asir Selvasing. Uh, he had fought a long, lonely battle uh, for many years to tell Microsoft, hey, Java is important, we, we need to do this. Mm -hmm. And his story became more um, resonating with management as Azure started to become more and more popular and more seen as the um, growth engine yeah. for Microsoft as a whole corporate entity. So when um, Satya Nadella came as CEO and changed the mindset around from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture, um, Microsoft started to recognize, well, um, as a public cloud provider, we can't afford to leave any money on the table. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so where is the money? The money is in places that are not just .NET Microsoft shops. There's, there's plenty of people out there doing Java, plenty of people out there doing Node or Python. We need to have good offerings for that. So that's why they started ramping up. So Asir <coughs> eventually got headcount to hire um, a number of people that um, you talked about previously, Bruno Borges and then Teresa and eventually Reza, um, who I work with. Uh, and Reza further got headcount to bring on my, me. So, uh, you know, it wasn't just like me specifically, but it was someone in my role. Okay. So uh, the role of doing Java EE on Azure. This is your role right now. You are the Java EE yes. on, on Azure guy. Okay. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, suggestion. We have one hour. We do mm -hmm. a second part exclusively mm -hmm. on Java on Asia. Absolutely. Yes, please. This will be perfect because then we can fully focus you know, on the content on Java on Asia. And now we mm -hmm. have a great part of history, which is also you no know, fun for me. This is why I'm doing the podcast. You know, what happened at sometimes, yeah. how Java happened. And this was a great piece I didn't know about, about the Mesos story. And I also had some mm -hmm. interaction with the Mesos guys. Um, it was interesting mm -hmm. with the founders. And yeah, interesting, you know, part of the history. So where people can find you on the internet? Uh, well, usually I point them to my website, ridingthecrest.com. Riding the Crest. And my, riding the Crest. So that's the subtitle of my uh, book, Riding the IT Crest. Okay. And uh, Twitter? Do you have a Twitter? Twitter is Ed Burns. Just Ed Burns. E Ed Burns. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So I would say we record another episode just about yes, Java E or J2E or Jakarta E on Asia. I hope so. I hope so. As soon as we can do it, the better, because we have a lot of great things. I could tell you a huge story about Open Liberty on Kubernetes, Open Liberty on OpenShift, uh, WebLogic on Kubernetes. We have a lot of great things that we're working on. Perfect. Thank you. All right.